Well, welcome to Bible Center. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great having you with us to worship uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want to welcome those who are joining us online. I hear that hundreds now, every Sunday from around the country and even some of our missionaries in different parts of the world are able to take advantage of our live stream and later our videos. We want to welcome you uh, here in spirit as well as those who are here in presence. It's my privilege today to introduce Beth Vinsel as our scripture reader. Beth has been at Bible Center for over 18 years, and she has served as a teacher at Bible Center School for about 16 years. And every Sunday we highlight how different people worship, belong, and serve at Bible Center. And I was impressed when she sent us her note this week that her places of belonging and serving are identical. Uh, She serves and belongs in the worship team. She serves and belongs in the youth team. Uh, She serves and belongs in in some small group settings. So I'm so thankful to have her read the scriptures. Let me invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app, and let's read together. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to Philemon. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Beth. When you hear the words dysfunctional family, what comes to your mind? Dysfunctional family, what comes to your mind? Maybe this picture or this TV show comes to your mind. Uh, a popular dysfunctional family in our day and age. Uh, for some, some of us growing up, the dysfunctional family looked more like this. Uh, Clark Griswold and his clan in various movies. Uh, maybe you feel like you could be a card-carrying member or wear this shirt. Uh, you can actually order these online. You know, the truth is, all of us, at some point or another, come from broken uh, families, broken situations, because the truth, of, uh, truth is, we are all on a journey, still growing, still being put together by the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask at the beginning of this series, you don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you have ever been offended or offended someone else? Again, you don't have to raise your hand. How many have ever been offended or offended someone else? I have certainly done my fair share of offending, and of course, I too have been offended. Maybe you have a grudge against somebody here in town. They're at Kroger, and they're going down aisle 5, and you'll make sure no matter what, you're going to make a beeline to aisle 15 because you have a grudge against that person. Maybe you really, it's just almost borderline hatred towards someone who may have wronged you, and you have a legitimate reason to be concerned 
but that hatred perhaps is beginning to consume you. I heard the story this week of a woman that was greatly offended by her pastor. And after the service, she walked up to him to shake his hand, but instead said, Pastor, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. And he looked at her and he says, well, ma'am, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. (laughs) The nature of church life is that it's easy to be offended. It's just the nature of family life in general or where you work or where you play. Uh, I heard the story again this week of a man who'd been shipwrecked for decades on an island And when the rescue boat finally came, they found three huts and asked him, sir, what are the three huts? He says, well, that hut is my house. The second hut over there, that's my church. And they said, well, sir, why is there three huts? What's the third hut? He said, oh, that's the church I used to go to before I got offended. (laughs) So if any of that applies to you, the series through Philemon, verse by verse, I trust, will be a blessing to your heart. What does God's family look like? That's what we're going to check out this morning from verses 1 through 7. Feel free to follow along in your notes or in your app, whichever is easiest for you. What does God's family look like? Number one, we have the best dad ever. We have the best dad ever. We're going to start in verse 3 and then come back in a moment to verse 1. In verse 3 he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Why would he start at the very beginning of his letter with this grace and peace of God? Well, it was certainly part of his regular standard greeting, but I think we're going to see there's more of a a theological reason here in just a minute. Philemon is Paul's shortest letter, but yet it's his most personal. Paul wrote to Philemon, who was a wealthy businessman in the, 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 the city of Eva Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, then we sometimes call Asia Minor. And evidently, at some point, Philemon had gone to Ephesus and had heard Paul teach. Most believe it was probably in the school of Tyrannus, as Paul was there for several years teaching and expounding the scriptures And some point in time, he hears the gospel from the Apostle Paul, trusts Jesus Christ, comes back to the city of Colossae, and God uses his influence in business and his influence where he lives to open up his home to be one of the first house churches in the area. There was another disciple of Paul by the name of Epaphras, who was the church planter. He was the pastor But it seems that Philemon was the host as he opened up his home to host a church. You know, interestingly, there's no evidence that churches had their own buildings for about the first 200 years of church history. Now, 200 years doesn't sound like a lot to us, but when you think about it, that's about the age of the United States. And and so there was never a question in the early church was, should I bring my coffee to church or not? It was simply a matter of, you're coming into my house. They were not auditoriums, they were living rooms. And so you can see as we're trying by God's grace to create a family feel here at Bible Center as we think to the future of, yes, we have a beautiful building, but we want our church to feel and to be thought of more as family But regrettably, like most Romans, Philemon owned slaves. 
Now, there's two ways to understand his slave ownership. One way is to recognize it's not the same as it was in the early days of the United States. Roman slavery and the system was not race-specific. And so it's true that about a third of the, the population uh, found themselves in slavery. One estimate even brings it almost up to half. And, and while it's true that there were doctors and lawyers and accountants and people of all professions who were indentured servants or slaves, that still doesn't make it right. One thing became totally clear to me this week as I'm reading a stack of commentaries on this little book. It occurred to me that most of the guys I read are white, middle-class uh, authors that I deeply love and deeply thank the Lord for, but I heard professor after professor or read commentator after commentator trying to justify slavery and make it sound okay. And my thought was two. One, they've probably never seen Schindler's List. Because if you've seen Schindler's List, you know that there were accountants and lawyers and doctors and people of all professions who were brought into slavery simply because they were Jews. And it's also easy for us to sit in prosperous America and think that, well, the slavery wasn't that bad. It actually was that bad. I read another account this week that one particular slave committed a crime. His owner had 400 slaves, and so a jury had all 400 sentenced to death to prove a point to everybody else in Rome that when one slave commits a crime, they are all guilty and accountable. So why didn't Paul go after the slave system? If it was evil, if it was so bad, why did he not attack it? There's several thoughts. One is, it seems that he had the root in mind. He went to the heart of the issue. And we're going to look next week how he told Philemon to receive this slave as a brother. So instead of attacking the slave system, he did something far greater by going to the heart of the matter. William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. often quoted the book of Philemon, and it's been used throughout church history to bring justice in unjust systems. And so God did use Paul ultimately to help abolish what we refer to as slavery. But Jeffrey Wilson gave us a great quote. He writes this, If this letter, referring to Philemon, presented no revolutionary challenge to the social structures of the day. The implications of its teaching were bound to prove fatal to slavery in the end. One of Philemon's slaves was a man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus wronged his master in some way. We don't know exactly what he had done. There's a lot of speculation. This particular book is so short, Paul leaves out many of the details. But Philemon wronged his master and runs away, probably to Rome, to try to dissolve and hide, disappear in the big city. Most believe he had stolen something, he had taken something, maybe cheated his master out of some labor. We're not for sure. So his master Philemon is a believer. Onesimus, the slave, runs away and he's trying to run from his master. There's a problem. He might be able to run from his lowercase m master, but he could never run from the capital M master. 
And God knew where he was the entire time. And the Lord orchestrated the events so that Onesimus runs into Paul somehow. Again, there's so much speculation. Some, one tradition says that his trade was that he was a chef. I have no idea, but I like these traditions. Maybe he was a chef when Paul was in house arrest and they developed a friendship. We can only speculate. But as he met Paul, he heard the gospel and also became a Christian. So now he and his master have something in common. They have Jesus in common and they have the same spiritual father in common, the apostle Paul. And Paul loves Philemon. You can tell, or he loves, excuse me, Onesimus. And he, he wants to keep Onesimus, but he writes back to his master Philemon and says, It's right that I send him back, but don't receive him back as a slave. Receive him back as a beloved brother. On what foundation can Paul make this request? It's simple, it's in verse 3. He writes again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason Paul could appeal for mercy and grace from Philemon for Onesimus is because Paul knew that they all had received the grace and peace from God the Father. Grace and peace are the foundation upon which our relationships must be built. Until we understand the vertical line of grace receiving from God, we'll never be able to show grace and peace to others. We spent two months, the months of March and April, looking at the grace of God in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the living God who demands perfection of all humankind, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserved, to rise again, to ascend back into heaven, and to grant forgiveness, righteousness, his spirit, and eternal life the moment we repent and believe. I want to ask today, have you or do you have peace with God? Not have you made peace with God, but do you have peace with God? In 15, 16 years of short years of pastoral ministry, I've heard enough people in the hospital say, Pastor, I've made my peace with God. And in those moments, the last thing you want to do is correct somebody's wording and you want to make sure they understand the gospel. But that's the reason we have Sunday morning. We want to build strong believers so that we are all ready when we go to our deathbed. And there's coming a day when we are on in that place and on that bed. And I do hope you will not say, Pastor, I've made my peace with God. For there's only one person who can make peace with God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you and I could never make peace with God, He took our place, and we can be right before the Lord, not because we said the right thing or did the right works, but because Jesus said the right thing, and Jesus did the right works. 
And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've come this morning and you don't have peace with God, there's good news. Jesus has already made peace. And he offers it to you free and clear. And today, if you'll ask God to save your soul, he will. Because we have the best dad ever. Our relationships grow from that point. They're built on the gospel. So what else does God's family look like? Look with me, if you will, at our second point, beginning in verse 1. What does God's family look like? Number two, we cut each other some slack. We cut each other some slack. You ever been ever asked a teacher or a coach, cut me some slack? Ever asked your spouse or a friend, have you children, students, ever asked your parents, mom and dad, please cut me some slack? Don't answer that. In verse 1, let's see what Paul writes. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. By saying that he was a prisoner, uh, he was certainly speaking figuratively. He was a, a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but in context, he was speaking physically. He was a prisoner of the Roman guard. It's debated whether or not he was in a cold, dark jail cell or if he was in house arrest. Either way, he was probably writing this letter with some kind of chains, some kind of handcuffs. And so it would have been dramatic for Philemon to, to read this letter knowing that he is pinning this through handcuffs. But he says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, but I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ because he belonged to Jesus. He had no problem belonging in the jail. And it says, and Timothy, our brother. It's possible that Timothy was a co-author, but more than likely, Timothy was just there as his companion. Uh, Paul was an excellent name dropper, but he used it strategically. Now, we know that every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but why would Paul tell Philemon, hey, Timothy, your brother, is here with me? Well, it, it, was, it was because of Timothy's influence in Ephesus. Ephesus was only about 100 miles or so away from Colossae, and Timothy had begun, to, had begun to get quite a reputation for being the spiritual leader of the region, and that was through Paul's mentorship. So it would be like me writing you and saying, oh yeah, by the way, uh, let's say Kenny, one of our deacons, Kenny, by the way, it's good to see you, can't wait to see you again, uh, Billy Graham says hello. Now that would be a strategic letter for me to write. He would, he would wake up. Now, certainly he would love just knowing that his pastor was saying hello, but Billy Graham might add a little bit of importance to the letter. And that's what Paul was doing here. Timothy, my brother, your brother is with me. And he's writing to Philemon, still verse 1, our beloved fellow worker. If you're taking notes, you might write the word synergy in the margin, Fellow worker comes from the Greek word synergies, or it comes from the idea of synergism or synergy. Philemon and I were, were, were co-workers. There was synergy between us for the gospel. But he's also writing to at least two other people. In verse 2, he says, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. 
Tradition says, and most scholars believe, that Aphia was probably Philemon's wife. So he's, he's making this a family affair. And then he writes to Archippus, who was probably Philemon's son and Aphia's son. Colossians chapter 4, towards the very end of the book, uh, Paul, as he's writing to the same church, mentions Archippus and how the Archippus had become a great leader in the church at Colossae. It's possible that he was their son, and it seems that he may have even been become an elder or the pastor of the church at Ephesus after Timothy had moved on. And he says, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Again, I love that, that picture. There's a group of believers cramming in Philemon's house. He, he probably was a larger house because of his influence and his wealth. And he says in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Paul was a grateful leader. One of the keys to leadership is being grateful, not thinking that we have it all figured out, but thanking God for the people around us. I, as a pastor, our pastoral staff, we thank God for you and how that we partner together in the ministry. I couldn't get away from this thought this week, meditating on verse 4. And that was how that Paul thanked God for the people around him as a gift from the Lord himself. We get into trouble in our relationships when we make people our God. How do we make people our God? By thinking that ultimately all of our satisfaction comes from people. We do this, right? To our spouses, to our kids to our friends, to church members. We get this mixed up at times. And Paul reminds us that these are just road signs pointing back to the gift giver, the Lord Jesus himself. But in verse 5, he says, I hear of your love and faith. I've got love and faith circled, and I'll tell you why in a minute. I hear of your love and faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I have Jesus and saints also circled. In the original, as well as in our English translation, it's kind of a, a crisscross wording, and it's on purpose for emphasis. I've got a line going from love to saints and from faith to Jesus. If you write in your Bible and you want to do that, feel free to do that. But it's in a crisscross format. And what Paul is showing is that our love, or excuse me, our faith in the Lord Jesus produces love for others. It's impossible for us to say that we love God if we don't also love others. And it's really impossible for us to love others unless, of course, we have faith in God fueling the whole thing. Here's a question that I want us to take just a minute uh, to ponder on. I encourage you to ask yourself this question. Am I more known for cutting people or cutting people slack? Am I more known for cutting people or for cutting people slack? You see, as Paul writes to the church, the whole reason he's writing to Philemon and the church at Colossae is he's about to give this huge appeal. We're going to look at it next week on Mother's Day. This big appeal, receive Onesimus, I know he's a face that only a mother can love, but receive him 
as yourself. Receive him as my brother. So before he gets to that place, Paul is laying a foundation. He is saying, I already see evidence of your understanding of God's grace to you, and I already see grace spilling out in the church into other places. And because of that grace, I'm going to ask you to to pick up some of that grace and to apply it to Onesimus' account. Are you more known for cutting people or cutting people some slack? You know, one of the hard things about being a pastor isn't preaching sermons. The hardest thing about a pastor is studying a sermon and letting it go through him before it comes to the pulpit. This week, I was wrestling through verses 5 and 6 and 7, and I just had to like go for a walk. You ever just in the Bible and you're like, I just need to close this for a while. I need to get out of the kitchen because the heat is too hot. And I come downstairs and decide to, not that you need to know this, but use the restroom downstairs. And I'm walking back upstairs and Phyllis Van Horn catches me and she goes, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And she said a lot of nice things. She said, can I ask you something to the effect of what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? I said, Phyllis, do you really want to know? It's letting the Bible work through your own heart before you give it to other people. You know how easy and quick we are to cut people out of our relationships before we're willing to show grace and mercy and forgiveness. Now that doesn't mean there's not lines and limits. When it comes to leadership in the church, 1 Timothy 3, of course, there are certain lines and limits that God clearly draws. I'm not even talking about the questionable ones that God says, hey, doesn't mean I don't love this person any less, but there's, there's leadership requirements. That's not opposite of grace. That's just wisdom for that person and for the people around us. But God in his word is inviting us to be people of grace. Maybe you've been cutting and ripping into your children. Maybe you've been cutting or ripping into your son-in-law or daughter-in-law. Or maybe it's your spouse. They did something to you years ago and they said something to you or they stepped out on you or or they were emotionally involved with somebody else. And it's been a long time, but every day you get up, you just cannot seem to forgive that person. And every time there's an argument, it just surfaces again. You throw it back in their face of something they did years ago. Maybe it's a friend Hey, even in our church, if you're a, let me speak to the younger folks for a minute. If you classify yourself as younger, maybe all of you do, then go ahead and let this uh, settle in. We're going to speak to the older folks in a moment. You know, sometimes we younger folks uh, need to feel God's invitation to show grace to the older. It's easy for us to think, well, why are they being so, somebody being so grumpy? Or why does somebody seem to be not so happy? One day when we're in their position and we've got all the burdens of life that they have, we'll know. But may I also ask the older to show grace to the younger. Instead of just seeing a young person and grabbing them in the hallway and telling them what you think, what would it look like for you to take a younger lady, ladies, or a younger man, men, to coffee. Have them into your home. Feed them a meal. 
and build a relationship before you go for the juggler vein. What would it look like for us to be people of grace? In 1 John chapter 4, John says something very scary, very challenging, but can also be very encouraging. He writes this, Whoever claims to love God but hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. What does God's family look like? We cut each other some slack, far more by his grace than maybe we currently do. What else does God's grace, God's family look like? Well, lastly, in number three, we're going to look at verses six and seven. If you're taking notes, we've summarized it this way. We pray together and stay together. We pray together and stay together. In verse 6, Paul writes, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The word pray in verse 6 is supplied. It it refers back to the prayers of verse 4. It's understood. Paul is saying, I am praying that the sharing of your faith becomes effective for this reason. Now, verse 6 is the hardest verse in the entire Bible to translate, in my opinion, and also in the opinion of a few of those commentators I talked about. In verse 6, he he strings along this big list of words like faith and knowledge and and sharing. And it's kind of like the way we pray sometimes, right? It's like you just use big words. I know sometimes not quite sure what it all means. And Paul's using these big words for a purpose. Now, there's different ways to look at verse 6. Some people take verse 6 to mean that he is saying, share your faith with others. As you share your faith with others, the church will grow and more people will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Is that true? Yes. Is that what verse 6 is talking about? No. This idea of sharing your faith, he's not talking about going and knocking on a door and handing somebody a gospel tract, although that can be great. He's talking about sharing your lives. And the way we know this is because the word sharing in verse 6 is the same exact word as the word partner in verse 17. It's the same word. So let's zoom out for a minute. Instead of just seeing the trees, let's see the forest for the trees. As we zoom out, the whole letter is written to Philemon to receive his slave back into fellowship, not into slavery, but as a brother. He's going to employ Onesimus. Give him a job in his house, not as a slave, but as a brother. And so he's writing to Philemon saying, hey, Philemon, share your house, share your, your, your employment roster, share your life with this brother so that the entire church and community can see this big picture. So the sharing of your faith in verse 6, he is saying, share your very life share your very soul, and in so doing, everybody will sit up and take notice. The word sharing doesn't refer to the cutting of a birthday cake and giving everybody a slice. 
But the word refers to like the way we share Canal State Forest. It's something really, really big. It's something we could never exhaust, but we all get to enjoy it, even at the same time if we want. And so he writes to the early church, and he writes to Philemon, and he says, I am praying for you. I am praying that you will not only go to a service, church service together on Sunday, but that you will do life together. That's what we're praying right now for Bible Center. We are excited. Through the efforts of so many of you and through God's grace, through leaders like Pastor Bill Tanzi and others at Bible Center in the last decade and a half, we have gone from having zero in community groups now to about 500 uh, people that meet in some type of community group on a weekly basis. That's awesome. That is huge. But we also recognize the fact that we're in a church of about 2,500 to 3,000 adults who would say, yeah, Bible Center is my church. So if only 500 are in any kind of ABF, community group, men's group, women's group, we have our work cut out for us. And our prayer is that for the decades to come, God will make us even more a church that not only grows larger, it's not our passion, but that we grow smaller. Pray with us about that, the sharing of life together. What's our main encouragement today? It comes in the form of a prayer. I would invite you in a moment to pray this prayer or some version of it. Lord, make me the kind of family member I expect everyone else to be. Make me the kind of family member I expect everyone else to be. Several years ago, we were in Virginia. I've told you before that we used to travel, and uh, I was an evangelist for our denomination. And we were trying to get into a uh, the campaign had ended on a Thursday night, and we had two days to get to our next church. And so our oldest, Katie, she was probably four years old. She was pretty little. And of course, you have to go stop by the bank. If you find your bank when you're out traveling, they don't have BB&Ts everywhere. So I was in Virginia, and I saw a BB&T and said, hey, I've got to go by the bank before we t take off. So I was trying to get over. It was the nice part of Richmond, really nice part. I can't remember which part, but it was like a new part of Richmond. And I'm trying to get over into BB&T, but you couldn't turn left at this one spot. So I had to keep on going down. Finally found a place to turn left. Big old sign, no left turn. And so I go up, and I'm pulling up beside the BB&T the other way, and there's another sign that says no left turn. And it's one of those real nice part of towns where even like the Domino's pizzas and brick, you know, one of those nice kind of part of towns. And so I'm trying to turn in the bank, and I'm like, come on, man, this is crazy. What city designer to put signs, no left turn? In West Virginia, you just turn where you want to turn. This is Virginia. And what are they thinking? It's about like Ohio. So I turn left. I look to my right. There's nobody coming. Look to my left. I'm really looking for police cars. There's no police cars around. I'm like, okay, I'm getting in this bank. So I turn in, and about that time, I hear a siren. And it wasn't a car. It was a motorcycle. This uh, policeman, I'm sure fine, upstanding, respectful policeman, for all you policemen in here, uh, he, he was hiding behind the bushes in his motorcycle. And, and so I pull into BBT, just finished a revival campaign, you know, on a spiritual high. 
you know, not Billy Graham, but Billy Graham wannabe. And, and pull into the bank. He pulls in behind me. My four-year-old daughter's in the back seat. He comes up beside me, and he, he asks me a question. Knocks on the you know, window, rolled down the window. Did you see, excuse me, sir, did you see that uh, no left turn sign? Now, again, before I answer, <laughs> we had a great revival meeting. God blessed. It was wonderful. And I look at him, this has been seven years ago, and I say, why, no, sir. I didn't, didn't see the sign. He knew I was lying. You who are in law enforcement, you know when somebody's lying. And he goes, okay. He said, well, let me help you remember. And he goes and gets his pad and comes back and writes me a ticket and tells me no more left turns. So I'm pretty upset, right? Like, you know, I don't know what the ticket was. It wasn't that much. Go back to the hotel. We're packing some things up. And about that time, our four-year-old decided to, like, forearm our one-year-old. You know, kind of one of those, like, you know, wrestling WWE moves. And, and so she's in the crib, the portable pack-and-play, and our four-year-old, you know, takes, about, takes off the head of our one-year-old. And, and so I'm upset, right? I'm already upset i got to pay, like, a $50 ticket. Now I've got, like, kids doing WWE from the, you know, in the, anyway. And so I, I take Katie and I set her down. And I look right at Katie. We had three rules in our house. Always obey the rules. You don't have to make rules if you just say always obey the rules. You can just make them up as you go. Uh, oh, this is getting bad. Um, never, ever lie and always love others. Those were our three rules growing up. So I set Katie down, and I'm looking her in the eye, and of course, you know, she's got the lip. And I said, Katie, always, always obey. Never, ever, and the Holy Spirit brought it right back to my heart. I didn't hear a voice, but I almost did. And it was as if, how in the world can I tell her, this is the kind of family member you need to be, if 15 minutes earlier, I wasn't the kind of family member I needed to be? And how in the world can we leave a service like this, thinking about all the other people who needed this sermon, instead of asking God, dear God, show me how I need this sermon. Lord, make me the kind of family member I expect everyone else to be. Will you pray that with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our brothers and sisters who are here. We pray now for those who don't feel that they have peace with you. Instead of them trying to make their peace, I pray they'd put their faith in the one who already made it. If that's you today, and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, let me invite you to do so. I'm going to pray this prayer. I invite you to pray this with me. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in your own words, in the quietness of this moment, let me invite you to call on the name of the Lord. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I know I've broken your law. But I believe you love me. I believe you sent Jesus to save me. I believe he died for my sins and rose again. Please come into my life and make me a Christian. 
with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer today, would you reach out to us this morning or this week in some way? Just let us know. You can let me know. Hey, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. I'd love to be able to send some resources your way this week or next that can help you grow as a Christian. Christians, let's pray that prayer together. Let's ask God to make us the kind of family member we expect everybody else to be. And in a moment, we'll close with a song.